we just entered the month of Nisan, which is the time of the, the uh, month of Pesach, moving towards Pesach in two weeks' time. And um, one of the themes of, uh, perhaps the central theme of this month, and Pesach in general, is the theme of the Nisim, miracles. Miracles. In fact, the word Nisan, this month, the name of the month, is actually has the same numerical equivalent as the word Nisim, which means miracles. The month itself, Nisan, means it means that which is miraculous. You don't need to know much about Judaism to know that the whole process of the Exodus was a miraculous process, exactly opposite to the to the process of Purim that we that we went through a short time ago, where the the miraculous redemption of the Jewish people was completely hidden. In other words, it, it, it disguised itself that redemption from a situation, a decree of complete annihilation to a situation of redemption was hidden in political, seeming, seemingly natural, normal political events. There's no divine revelation. There's no name of Hashem mentioned in the Megillah. It is in the month of Adar, which is in the depth of winter. And we now enter spring where things begin to be revealed. And the whole story of, of the redemption of the Geula is a miraculous story. So let's look this evening a little bit. As you heard a few moments ago, we need all the merit we can get right now. And there's no merit really greater than Torah learning. So let's put our heads into this as deeply as we can. We have a deep promise that the redemption will take place this month, the month of Nisan. It might just as well be this one as any other. So, you know, let's do what we can to, you know, to play up. Let's play our part in that if we can. There's no better way than studying Torah in depth. Let's see if we can do that. <coughs> what is this concept of that which is miraculous? The whole, the whole theme of Nisim, of miracles, very difficult for us to relate to. We don't see miracles. The whole credibility for our scientifically minded generation of this type of issues, fraught with problems. And yet that's what we're based on. The Jewish people, our, our existence and what we are is predicated on another world, another dimension, the dimension of that which is miraculous. So let's try to let's try to think it through. Carefully, slowly, let's see what we can let's see what we can understand. <coughs> first of all first of all, you know that the uh, the Rambam says, when he brings the laws of the Pesach Seder, the night of Pesach, where we sit and we fulfill the mitzvot, right? The laws of Pesach. We are, we are fulfilling certain steps, certain commandments. One of them is the telling of the story of going out of Egypt, right? Yetzirah Mitzrayim, the story of the Exodus itself. Sipur Yetzirah Mitzrayim. The telling of the story of the Exodus from Egypt. Right? That is the central mitzvah. Pesach even means, you know, many ways to illustrate it. The word Pesach, one of the hatayot, one of the uh, nuances in that name, is Pesach. The mouth tells. Pesach, it means to leap over. It means to leap, to jump, right? Spiritually, to leap to levels that are beyond the norm. 
That itself is an indication of the miraculous nature. Pesach is not going step by step. That happens afterwards in 49 days of reaching Sinai. But Pesach itself is a leap into a completely miraculous world. Right? That's what it means. Lipsoach in Hebrew means to jump over. Pass over. It means to jump. It doesn't only mean that Hashem passed over our houses miraculously. It also means that we leapt to the 50th level of spirituality with no reason. We didn't deserve We hadn't earned that yet. The normal process is step by step. The Kabbalistic sources are full of that. The first night of Pesach, for example, you know it's written in the deep sources that unlike every other night of the year, one night a year, you do not have to pray the evening service. You know that? Mairiv, Arvit, the, the tefillah that we daven every night, it's written in deep sources. The first night of Pesach, it's not necessary. Don't make a mistake. It is obligatory. But spiritually, it's not necessary. That means the Kabbalistic notion is every night when you daven, every tefillah, every prayer service, makes certain things happen in the higher worlds. Now, it's a work. It's called, it's called the work of the heart. It's not, it's not only connecting ourselves. One of the aspects of tefillah is that it, man, it manipulates, it generates certain changes, certain energy, certain things happen in the higher worlds. On the first night of Pesach, unlike all the other nights of the year, those things happen automatically. Right? It's a night of a light shining that doesn't need, doesn't need us to build that light to make it happen. It happens automatically. The same sources ask, so why do we go to Shul on the first night of Pesach? Why do we daven Marif if we not need it? And the answer is simply to make ourselves, re- that means to relate to that. If you want a crude analogy, it would be other nights of the year we daven Marif to push a wave. We make the wave move. This night of the year, all you want to do is ride that wave. You want to, this happening by itself doesn't need you to push the wave. But this night of the year, you do those actions, not to make it happen, but just to benefit. To, that's what it means, why is this night different from all other nights. That's what it really means, the depth. The depth isn't that we do different customs. Different. The depth of it is that this night is unlike all other nights. This is a night that's not a night. It's a night that, that's a day. It's neither a day or a night. It's completely different than all other nights. It is a night that celebrates that which is completely miraculous, completely transcends all the natural world, and one of the mitzvahs is Pesach, the mouth says. <coughs> now, you have to tell the story. You have to tell the story of how we came into being and how we left that, that uh, slavery of Egypt. Now what's very perplexing is, how would you express, how would you express the mitzvah? You'd say, surely, if you had to phrase the law and tell Jews how to fulfill that mitzvah, you would say, the mitzvah is to tell of Exodus. Sipur Yitzis Mitzrayim. To tell the story of Exodus in all the stages. Right? But if you look in the Rambam, in his classic halachic um, formulation, he says something very unusual. He says that the mitzvah that you fulfill at the Pesach Seder is to tell Lesaper, to tell the nisim and niflawa, the, the, the miracles and wonders that accompany the Exodus. Huh? In other words, again, it's clear, every word, no word, wasted words. When the Rambam says a word, he means exactly what he says. He does not say that the mitzvah is to tell the story of the Exodus. He says the mitzvah is to tell the miracles and wonders of the Exodus. So people, you can very easily get that wrong. You can sit and tell your children that we became a nation, we left Egypt, we were enslaved, we became free. You haven't fulfilled the mitzvah according to Ramah. You have to tell them that it was a miraculous process. That's the central issue. On the contrary, the national, geographical, sociological issue is completely secondary. The fact that we were enslaved under another nation and we became an independent nation, moved towards our own land... That's nice, and it's great, and it's very important, but other nations claim the same. What other nations don't claim is to live on a miraculous plane. That's who we are. The fact that we started in one country and were dominated by another nation, and then we achieved freedom, became an independent national entity, ended up in a homeland, you know, they all talk that way. That's not the issue. The issue is, the issue is that we moved from a natural to a supernatural plane. That's what the Ramah means. Our mitzvah is to tell, do you know how deep this is? Amazing thing. 
Do you know that the whole night of Pesach is, spoke, is spent talking about miracles? Like the Rambam says, the whole work of the Seder is to talk about the miracles. A miracle is that which breaks the Seder, breaks the order. Right? There's no order. That means the whole concept of a miracle is that it breaks the order. So we spend the whole night talking about that which breaks the order, which has no Seder to it. Now the chutzpah to call it a Seder. Seder means that which is perfectly ordered. It's a remarkable thing. We sit all night and talk about how our history breaks all the rules, and then we call that a Seder, which means that which is perfectly going according to the rules. And you know what the Svasemah says? Because that's exactly what we are. We live in a world where our order is the breaking of the natural order. That is where we're comfortable. That's our natural law. Our natural law in the transcendent world. That's our Seder. And that's where we're comfortable. We sit on the night of Pesach and we talk about... And you should feel... You should feel that that's where you are. You're living on a completely different plane. It's a completely different night. It's a night where we feel natural in the supernatural plane. That's who we are. That's of essence to us. It's very hard for us to feel this, particularly in our generation. It's hard at the best of times. But so let's, let's work through this slowly. Slowly, try and understand Amazing subject. First of all, you know, the Rambam says in the, his laws of Hilchas uh, Deus, Hilchas Yisraeli Torah, the laws of the fundamentals, where he brings uh, fundamental aspects of the foundations, if you like, of Judaism. He says them interestingly. He says this. He says that the reason that we relate to Hashem, stay carefully with me, is very, usually very badly misunderstood. He says, you look it up yourself, and see the words there exactly, but he says words to this effect, that the reason that we relate to Hashem the way we do, is because we met Him at Sinai. Our relationship with Hashem is what happened after the Exodus, after 49 days of moving through the desert, we stood at Sinai, we met Him personally, we received the Torah from Hashem. That's how we, that's, our, that's the nature of our relationship with Hashem. Not because we saw miracles and wonders. Not because we saw miracles and wonders, but because we stood at Sinai. Then the Raman says, because one who believes by means of miracles and wonders, Yesh beliboi doifi, that's the language there. Yesh belibo doifi, there is in his heart an imperfection. Somebody who believes because of miracles and wonders, right? that means miracles and signs and wonders, a person who believes because of that, Yesh beliboi doifi, there is in his heart an imperfection. Doifi means in Hebrew, it means tamra, a bad taste. There's a, there's a spoiled taste, it's like in the laws of Kashrut. There's, some, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wrong taste here in the heart and mind of someone who believes and relates to Hashem because of miracles and wonders. We, do not, we are not who we are because of the miracles and wonders. But because of Sinai, began in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, with its ten sets of miracles and wonders, the river turning to blood, all, eventually the destruction of the firstborn in a miraculous fashion, followed the plague of darkness. And finally... We leave, the sea splits, which is, which is far greater than all the other miracles, and finally we arrive at Sinai. Why, do we, why are we who we are? Because we stood at Sinai and we saw Hashem personally, we heard Him speak, we related to, our, to Hashem personally. Not because we saw miracles and wonders. Okay? That's the fact. Now, why? Because someone who sees miracles and wonders and believes because of that, that's not, that's not where it is. That's not where it's at. Now, this raises a number of questions. Slowly, carefully. The way it's usually understood, and I'm trying to root this out of our minds because it's wrong. The way it's usually understood is like this. Why do we believe as Jews? Because our history begins with a personal experience of Hashem. Right? That's why we know that Hashem exists. Ask, you ask the formal question. How do we know that God exists? Let's be brutal and blunt about it. How do we know that God exists? We don't see Him now. We don't see Him. Because we met Him at Sinai. 
Why don't we answer because of the miracles and wonders in Egypt? Because the notion is people usually read the Rambam to mean because if you believe because of the miracles and wonders, there's something imperfect about that because it's not a clinched... That, that, that kind of proof is not incontrovertible. In other words, people usually understand. It's a very common understanding of this discussion in the Rambam like this. When we left Egypt, we saw miracles and wonders. What is the level of proof that Hashem exists, that God exists, when you see a miracle and a wonder? It's a very high order of proof, but it's not 100%. Maybe 99%. After all, it could be done, the Rambam says. The Rambam says quite clearly why. Because a miracle could theoretically have been done by forces other than what he calls Lat Vekishuf. Lat Vekishuf. Lat Vekishuf means... The Rambam uses those two words for a reason. He says, Al Yaday, Lat Vekishuf. The, the Gemara says there were two categories. Lat Velahat. Lat Vekishuf. Lat means technically what's called Shadim. Shadim means certain dark force energies that inhabit the world. I'm going to go into what they are. And Kishuf means what you would in English call some sort of, I don't know what the word would be, sorcery or some sort of uh, using of energies that are certain kinds of energies. Two different forms of these types of uh, wonder-working energies. And therefore, when you see a miracle performed, it's conceivable that it was done by some sort of some sort of force. And therefore, it's not an incontrovertible proof that God is behind this thing or that He, in fact, exists. But when you stand at Sinai and you see Hashem, so then the 99 becomes 100. And therefore, we know that He exists because we met Him personally and that erased all doubt. That's how people understand. And it's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. You'll hear that commonly offered as an explanation. It's not right. Let's try and examine why. See if we can get a little bit deeper. Look, first of all, first of all, why did Hashem show all the miracles in Egypt in the first place? If the definitive point of belief is meeting Him at Sinai, then who needs the whole process that leads up to there? That's the first question. Again, if He's trying to prove that He exists, so, so then why do you go through a lower order of proof first? And it's very impressive. It took a whole year, many months. All sorts of miracles. Hail coming down with fire inside. And darkness that was so thick that the Egyptians couldn't move. And water that became blood. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't mean that the water became misunderstand. The water was blood. You know, you know that when the Jews drank, it was water. When the Egyptians drank, it was blood. You know that. So people think it was, it was water for us, and in the mouth of the Egyptian it became blood. That was the miracle. But it's wrong. It wasn't like that. It was water for us and blood for them at the same time. It was both of those things. You have to understand, this is not something that became one thing and became another thing. It's a much deeper order of miracle, which I'll explain this. It was at one and the same time that even if you would have put your mouth to an Egyptian's mouth, the substance in yours would have been water and his would have been blood at the same time. Ah, oh, it's impossible. That's right. That's exactly what happened. So you went through all of that, and then you told me, well, that's not incontrovertible. What happened was, afterwards, at Sinai, and even the splitting of the sea, at which it says the lowliest of the Jews present at the sea, splitting of the sea saw more than the greatest prophet ever saw subsequently. <coughs> but even that's not incontrovertible. You know, there could have been some sort of hurricane force or some sort who knows what? I don't know, some sort of sorcery or... But when you stood at Sinai, there's no doubt. But then why do you go through the whole process? If you want to prove your existence and you are the creator of the world, then why do you do that? And furthermore, if that's inadequate for proof, we're just thinking logically here. If that's inadequate for proof, how come the Egyptians were held accountable for... Why does the Torah itself say that all the miracles and wonders took place in Egypt? Lema'an yedu, in order that you should know that I am Hashem and I control the world. And it says quite clearly that the Mitzri, the Egyptians should know. The Torah says that explicitly. 
The Egyptians should know that I am God. How will they know by seeing all my miracles and wonders? Well, one moment. If that's good enough for the Egyptians to have a proof, then why not for us? Well, let's turn the question around. If I am legitimately entitled to have a doubt when I see a miracle or a wonder, why is an Egyptian not allowed to have that doubt? Again, again, are we, t- are we, are we together? Are we thinking together? If you want to tell me that Sinai is incontrovertible, I stand at Sinai, I know God exists, from then on I'm a different person. But miracles and wonders are not good enough, because I can say that's some sort of sorcery. But then why deny the Egyptians that expose? You're going to hold the Egyptians accountable for their lives on recognizing that God exists. And the Torah says the way they recognize it is, they see my miracles in Egypt. And then you tell me, well, yeah, but that's not incontrovertible. You need to stand at Sinai. The Egyptians didn't stand at Sinai. And furthermore, not only that, you notice that the Egyptians who saw all those signs and wonders in Egypt, they did believe. They did know. And they had great experts in sorcery and witchcraft and so forth. And none of them tried to say, well, this is witchcraft. They didn't say that. When the final revelation occurred, the Egyptians saw clearly who it was. They were supposed to see and they saw. So now we've got a double problem. So if you can see from that, and even the Egyptians saw that, then what do you need Sinai for? Do, do, Do you hear what's going on? There has to be something wrong with our explanation, fundamentally wrong with our explanation that what happened in Egypt was a lower order of proof. 90%, 95, 99. And to clinch it for us skeptical, cynical Jews, so we stood at Sinai, we heard him speak directly, there's no more doubt. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. First of all, not only do you turn out not to need all the miracles that happened in Egypt, let alone the fact that it's supposed to be adequate for the Egyptians, but the Torah records those miracles and wonders as the reason for everything that we do. You know, when we talk about, the Ramban says, that virtually every mitzvah we do is Zecha Litzias Mitzrayim, reminding, relates back to the fact that we went out of Egypt. That's what he says, right? Many, many mitzvahs in the Torah, even mitzvahs that aren't explicitly related, wearing tefillin, for example. Tefillin. Huh? Mitzvahs where there isn't even a mention of going out of Egypt. Says the Ramban, we do those mitzvahs because we came out of Egypt. And many mitzvahs we actually say, Zeich Elitzias Mitzrayim, right? For example, I mean, take an extreme, when you make Kiddush on Friday night. Kiddush is a celebration of creation. Creation, not the Exodus. Shabbat is a celebration of creation. So you take the creation of the world, nothing could be bigger or more cosmic than that, and you say, I stand here now and celebrate the fact that Hashem is the creator of heaven and earth, Zeich Elitzias Mitzrayim, because we went out of Egypt. I mean, surely, if anything, going out of Egypt should be because he created the world, not the other way around. So even relating to the celebration of the creation of the world is rooted in going out of Egypt. And many, many mitzvahs we do because we went out of Egypt. Now, one second. If going out of Egypt is only the precursor, and standing at Sinai is the main thing, then why don't we say it's because of a reminder of standing at Sinai? There's something wrong here. If the exodus from Egypt, with all its signs and wonders and miracles is only a preliminary, a precursor, a build-up, which is not a clinching, not an incontrovertible proof. For the final, you know, definitive experience which is standing at Sinai, then isn't there something wrong with saying that we're doing all this mitzvot because we went out of Egypt? We should say we're doing all this mitzvot because we stood at Sinai, surely. Are we together? Are we making any progress? You're not going to enjoy the answers unless you hear the questions, right? These are difficult issues. Difficult issues. And you know, furthermore, furthermore, if you want to be brutally honest about it, there isn't any incontrovertible proof at all, not even Sinai. If you tell me, well, seeing wonders and miracles in Egypt, you know, that leaves room for doubt, right? Yesh belibo dofi, that means there's a... It's not a hole in your heart. When you stand at Sinai, it's absolutely incontrovertible. It's not true. It's not true. 
even Sinai, if you want to be skeptical, you can say, well, it was mass hypnosis, it was this, it was that, especially for us. Let alone, let alone us, those who stood there. But those who didn't stand there, Sinai was supposed to be the definitive experience for all Jews, not just for that generation. The Ramban says it was given over to us as an inheritance, and we can be absolutely secure in that knowledge, because parents don't give lies to their children as an inheritance. That's what he says. Is, is that right? I mean, let, let's, let's be a little daring. Is that right? That means because parents don't give lies to their children, that means they're not manchil, they don't, they don't give as an inheritance a set of lies, what your parents tell you. So therefore, I know that I stood at Sinai, and there's absolutely no doubt. You have to understand, it's setting the same mouth, same, same breath, as saying that those who stood there know that Hashem exists because they met Him, the same breath as I, personally, in this generation, know that with the same degree of security. Why? Because they experienced it, and parents don't give their children lies. So the claim is, I therefore know that Hashem exists because I stood at Sinai, because I experienced it personally through my parents' inheritance, but Egypt was not good enough for that. Is that really true? Is that really true? Let's be honest. Not only that, the Ramban himself says, in his introduction to his famous work on the, on the Talmud, not his <coughs> work, the Ramban, the Ramban Nachmanides, he says, that there's no ot chotech, that means there's no ra'ayah chotech, that's no, there's no incontrovertible proof in all of our religion. The Ramban says that, you know that? The language he uses is, that there's no proof in Judaism like a geometrical or mathematical proof. That's what he says. That's what he says. We're allowed to say that. If the Ramban says that, we can say it. And if the Ramban says that, he means Sinai too. So let's get this clear. I stand at Sinai, or at least I hear the story at the Pesach Seder. My parents told me, grandparents told them. That's absolutely clear. That does the job 100%. Which job? Excuse me, which job? Proves that Hashem exists? But we know it's not true. On the contrary, you know, if it were 100% proof, you'd have no free will. You'd have no free will. There's a gap of faith always. Always. It's essential, it's axiomatic. It could well be, that's why in philosophy, there's always a gap of knowledge, you know that? In the formal study of philosophy, you'll find that virtually nothing is known, you know that? The philosophers have doubts about everything. The classic doubt of all in formal philosophy is that there's no, there's no definitive proof of my own existence, you know that? We talk about that for humiliation. Never mind the things that I know. I can't even know with certainty that I exist. We have to take it as a working assumption. <laughs> And it could be that the reason our minds are built like that, that there's nothing that's incontrovertible that I can know with certainty, is because in the root of knowledge, and I say a very deep thing, in the root of knowledge here, which is the knowledge of Hashem's existence, is nothing deeper than that, there's no incontrovertible proof, there's a gap of imuna. There's a gap of knowledge that is a different kind of knowledge. So we have a very perplexing situation. Are we, do, are we agreed on that? And I would suggest to you that that's not the way to understand. The Raman does not mean that, and it's not, you have to be more sensitive in reading his words. He does not mean that the proofs and the wonders and the signs in Egypt were inadequate proofs. And standing at Sinai was an adequate proof. He does not mean that, the Raman. What he means is the following. But this is really fundamental. I mean, this is the beginning of who we are as a people. This is what's given from parents to children at the Pesach Seder. This is, this is what their consciousness should be built on. And for us in our generation, where many of us did not get it from our parents, where the transmission did break down, so it's even more fundamental to re-establish. Let's remove from our heads the concept of proof of God's existence. Right? That's not... You know why we read it that way? Because that's our need. 
We are children of a generation that desperately wants it to be proved. Most of us say to ourselves, if only he would show his face once to me, I would be his true servant. If he would just reveal himself to me. I'm not asking for anything too dramatic. Just, you know, one personal conversation. I want one tap on the shoulder. I want to turn around just once, and then I'll be the saintliest, you know, most righteous, zealous. And therefore, we're looking for it. We're looking for it. We want to hear it. We want to hear the proofs. We want to, we want to, be, we want to be convinced. We want to be convinced, but unfortunately we're Jews, right? Fortunately we're Jews. Unfortunately we've got very high, fortunately we've got very high standards of skepticism. <laughs> very stiff-necked, right? We're very stiff-necked. We've got very high standards of skepticism. We know we want to prove that's a proof. And so we try to hear it here, but that's not the discussion. That is not the discussion. Hashem was not trying to prove to us that He existed at Sinai. You know, like here I am, so like now I... That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. What it means is the following. Again, slowly, carefully, let's understand. Hashem's revealing Himself in Egypt. When God revealed Himself in Egypt through all the plagues and all the miracles and all the wonders, you have to understand that the ten plagues that happened in Egypt weren't only destruction of the ten mystical levels of Egyptian contamination. You know, the world is built on ten mystical dimensions. And the Egyptians had contaminated all of them. And therefore there were ten plagues in Egypt, each one knocking out a contaminated sphere of the world's creation. Are you familiar with that idea? Again, again, again. Why were there ten plagues in Egypt? Why ten? He could have laid Egypt low with one blow. Why ten plagues? But the truth is that the world is built on ten dimensions. And the Egyptians had darkened and toxified and contaminated all ten of them. And our sources indicate very clearly that each plague in Egypt was a knockout of the contamination, was a purification of one level of reality. This, in fact, is the reason that the plagues in Egypt correspond exactly to the ten sayings of creation. Because the ten sayings of creation, yeah, in the beginning, let there be light, etc., all of those sayings of creation are bringing one dimension of the ten of the world's existence into being. And since all of those ten had been contaminated and, and damaged by the Egyptians, so there was a purification process that worked step by step. And the morale works it out in detail. I mean, for example... Generally speaking, they go in reverse order. You know that. Because when you build something, you start from an infinite center that has no dimension. Then you build a layer around that and another layer. You build shells, layers. But when you purify something that's contaminated, you peel the layers away from the outside in. So you reverse the process. What is the first of the sayings of creation? Beratius, in the beginning. What was the last of the plagues, which corresponds to purifying that one? Killing of the firstborn. First. Firstness. The purity of being first. Right? And of course that's why the beginning, gracious is Hashem doing the creation, creating the world Himself and alone. And that's why the tenth of the plagues corresponds exactly that Hashem destroys the firstborn on His own. Not through any agent or any emanation or any angel. It's an exact return to that moment. What's the second of the sayings of creation? Let there be light. What was the second last of the set of plagues? Plague of darkness. Do you understand what's happening here? There's a process here of reversing. So there's, there's two things going on. When the ten plagues are taking place in Egypt, on one level they're destroying the Egyptians. And on another level they're destroying all the evil of Egypt and the contamination of the spiritual world. But they're also miraculous. You have to notice that. It isn't only that Egypt is being destroyed. You know, they could have been militarily destroyed. They could have been epidemic. They could have had all sorts of economic disasters and, and, and agricultural. They could destroy a country in many ways. But it wasn't done that way. It was done in such a way that each plague was a destruction of a spiritual level of Egypt and a revelation of that which is miraculous. And of course they go hand in hand. 
They go hand in hand. When you reveal that which is miraculous, you reveal Hashem, you immediately purify and detoxify the, spirit, the spiritual contamination of the darkness that is, we run the world. Right? We run the world and our gods. That process of purifying the darkness of human confusion in Egypt and revealing Hashem's presence in Egypt was perfectly adequate to ex- establish His existence. Perfectly adequate. First of all, it was good enough for us Right? We, we personally related to those things we saw him. But never mind us, it was good enough for the Egyptians. Even they who desperately would have liked not to believe. Clearly saw, the Torah says, that it was designed in order to show them. And they saw. Even they, on the contrary, because they were experts in Latvikishu, in Latvikishu, because they knew exactly the anatomy and the details of all the sorcery and all the Kishuf in the world. They could tell clearly by the end of the demonstration, all the demonstrations, that this was clearly from another world entirely. And therefore there was no problem with establishing his existence by means of the proofs of the miraculous destruction of Egypt. We saw it and they saw it. So what did Sinai do? Sinai was not designed to give us a proof that Hashem exists. Even the Egyptians had already had that proof than we certainly had. What happened at, at, at Sinai was a completely different experience. That was the establishing of our personal relationship with him. There was an intensity of personal relationship, right? You know, until then, there was a, a relationship with Hashem indirectly. Because we saw that He was in control of nature. We saw all of nature upended and turned upside down and inside out, so we knew that He existed. I would say that's like agreeing to marry someone because she's written you some very nice letters, I would say. The lady has written you some very eloquent letters, and she seems very desirable and attractive from the letters. And you no doubt that she exists. I mean, after all, you have the letters. You know, they even perfumed and <laughs> they probably come with a couple of photographs these days they probably come with I don't know a hologram that jumps uh, who knows what it does but that's that's one set of relating to the lady and then there's marriage marriage is a different thing marriage has got nothing to do the one is a set of knowledge uh, details of knowledge that you acquire through indirect through proofs through proofs incontrovertible or whatever the degree of strength of the proof is once it's adequate you know the fact but you know it in a completely different way than when you have personal intimate contact with the thing itself the Egyptians knew that Hashem exists and they knew it but they knew it through these indirect proofs because they saw his mastery of nature and we saw it too what happened at Sinai was something entirely different we got married we entered a personal relationship where in our consciousness our relationship with him lives as a primary element the discussion here has got nothing to do with strength of proofs, as, as one great man of this generation put it, and you, you couldn't put it more eloquently than this. He said, Those words are so unbelievably sweet. He said, it's not a question of the power of the proofs, it's a question of the quality of the knowledge. That says it all. The power of the proof. Right? The proofs were adequate in Egypt, adequate for Egyptians even. <coughs> Sinai didn't add any proof what Sinai did was establish a personal relationship it took us to a point where we don't need proofs anymore where we don't know it any longer through the fact that we, we saw miraculous things happen that could only have been done this way or that could possibly have been done another way but when the Rambam says yesh that there's an imperfection in your heart when you believe through, proof, through proofs he does not mean that you doubt he doesn't mean that but it means that the lack of taste that problem in your heart it's not because you're not clear, because you don't know. It's because you haven't had a personal experience. 
And there's a very big difference in the relationship. When I know something because it's been proved to me, you know, that fades with time. It's not the same experience. Next week I'm not thinking of the proof, the fact maybe. There's a world of difference between knowing something because it's been technically proved. I've never seen it, but it's been proved and I can't squeeze out of the proof anyway. And something that I've experienced, and I know because I've experienced that thing. At that point, proofs become irrelevant. Yeah, we have to understand that the nature of the Jewish people is that we live our relationship with Him in such a way that we don't need any proofs. Let's try and examine this a little bit more deeply. This is called Da'as, incidentally. Da'as means that which you know. Knowing that Hashem exists and what we are and what Torah is and our role and who we are and our personal relationship with Him, we know that in the inner faculty of Da'as. That means... You know what that means? That means a kind of knowledge that is so powerfully bonded to you that it is you. If you know something, there are two ways of knowing a thing. Let's get this clear. There are two human ways of knowing a thing. One is by calculation, by logic, by understanding. That's called Chochmah and Bina, Kabbalistically. Things that are, that, are, that are logical and proved and incontrovertible. That's one kind of knowledge. Then there's another kind of knowledge called Das. Das means the knowledge bonds with you to the extent that it is your mind. You know the Hebrew word Das has two meanings. Two completely different meanings. And we always have a principle, one word, two meanings, they must mean the same thing. Das in Hebrew means knowledge and the intimate connection in marriage. What on earth do those have to do with each other? But the connection idea is this. That which you know as part of your mind means a connection, a life connection. That's what it means. What is marriage? Marriage is not proofs or... or marriage is an intimate bonding of a life bonding. That's what it is. It's a joining of life. That's what knowledge means. Things that you know with your Chochmah and your Bina, you're not like a calculator, like a computer. They proved externally there's a calculation and a readout. But only a human can have dice. Dice means something that you know so powerfully. That if you know, and you know what the test is? Something that you know with dice, if somebody would come along and show you that it's wrong, you would cease to exist. You would suddenly have no place to be. You would not know who you are. Well, it's clear to see, isn't it? What's the primary knowledge of the dice? The fact that I exist. Do you know that through logical proofs and calculations? If you do, you need help. If you do, you need psychological help. If you know that you exist because you, you know, every morning you wake up and prove it to yourself, you wake up in the morning, you have doubts about your existence, you take out a pen and paper and you make some quick calculations, and now you establish it. If you do, you're in big trouble. That's not how you know you exist. You know you exist because you know it with a primary knowledge. It's a life bonding. That knowledge is in you because it is you. It is your knowledge. It's who you are. If somebody on the contrary would come along and show you that something you know like that is problematic, you become problematic. Because you're bonded with that knowledge. It is the, f- the, f- the stuff and fabric of your mind. That's what Da'as means. The difference is that what happened in Egypt was external knowledge. It was calculations, proofs, printouts, readouts, incontrovertible. Incontrovertible to the extent that anything can be doubted. Yes, it could be doubted, but it wasn't. It was good enough. What happened at Sinai wasn't any clearer in terms of being more proven. On the contrary, you could deny Sinai too if you wanted. Many do. We see it all the time. Many do. Doubtful, a folk experience, and this, a hypnosis. But not the issue. The issue is that what happened at Sinai was a completely different quality of knowledge. There was a marriage there. There was knowledge that entered the being of the Jewish people. Egyptians are not... They have no connection with that kind of knowledge. Egyptians and all their brothers and sisters and friends and cousins and uncles in the world have different... Their knowledge of God is a knowledge that can be obtained, but it's a knowledge by external proofs and relations. That means they can demonstrate, they can, and they can get to a very high level. But they do not have, we have a personal, they can of course if they want. 
it's within human capacity. It's not, not mufrach. It doesn't mean they can't. But our knowledge is a knowledge of a personal experience. We had a personal experience and it became part of our consciousness. And the mitzvah of the Torah is to know it that way. Haskel v'yadoya oisi. That means become wise and know me. Not through proofs. Which leaves that, that problem of a non-personal relationship. Uma hayodas is Hashem, the Rambam says. The purpose of the Jewish people is to become a nation who knows God. Knows, das. Not who can prove and demonstrate. That's not the point. We're not looking here for a marriage where you write letters to each other. That's not the issue. We're looking here for a personal experience. On the contrary, not just a personal experience, where we become each other and there isn't anything left of me if it's not part of you. This is a generation that's not aware of that. This generation's entire consciousness is in derivations and proofs. That's all. That's all. And unfortunately that drives inward into us too. Yes, if you can prove it to me, then I'll believe. But you're on the wrong wavelength. That's not the issue. It may be necessary, but it's not the issue. Can we begin to feel this in any... Let's try and feel it through. It's fine. After all, if it's possible to doubt, then isn't there still a problem? Again, let's go back. Let's try and let's run through it again. If it's possible to doubt, both Egypt and Sinai, isn't there a problem? You want me to have a personal relationship, and yet I still have doubt? You have to understand that we reached a level of knowledge. First of all, there's a fundamental introduction here that we need to dispel some confusion that we, we have in the, our pattern, our Western pattern of thinking. We have been taught to think that we only accept a thing when it's absolutely proved. Huh? And that's fundamentally wrong. There's always a gap of knowledge, not only in the, in the faith dimension, like we said already, but even in regular knowledge. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Slowly, carefully, think it through step by step. Most of the things that you relate to as factual are very far from proven. For example, how deeply, how intensely, how intimately do you believe that the sun will rise tomorrow morning? If you're normal, you have no doubt about that at all. Is it proven? Not at all. Not at all. How deeply, let's understand carefully, how deeply do you believe that the sun has always risen every morning, even long before you were alive, and it will do so tomorrow morning? In the philosophy of science, that is regarded as a completely open question. There is no proof at all. On the contrary, do you know that a pattern of, a pattern of repeat, repeated phenomena in science is not regarded as at all a proof that it will happen again in philosophy? There's a very basic understanding in philosophy of science. On the contrary, in philosophy of science, there's not even a notion that causality exists. You know that? There's even a philosophical problem with causality. That a thing that had... That the very notion that one thing can even cause a consequence, let alone the fact that it just seems to be repeated. So I can prove to you, very neatly and very clearly, that you have no reason to expect the sun to rise tomorrow morning. And every philosopher and philosopher of science will bear me out. But you have no doubt about it. On what basis? That needs discussion. But the point is, you live with that knowledge. Many factors of your life, you live with, without any satisfactory logical proof. But you know them, because you know that's the way reality is. Ah, why aren't you worried that, uh, you know, when you... Why aren't you worried when you wake, take one step to the left, you'll disappear? It's conceivable. You know it's not going to happen. Excuse me, how do you know? Do you have a proof for that? Did you ever do it? Did you ever do that step to the left? There's a level of knowledge, in, in fact, in fact, not in spirit, in fact, that is good enough 
and certain degrees of evidence are good enough to convince you that that's the way it is, and you live with that. The level of proofs that we had in Egypt was ample for that. I, theoretically, you could just, that's not the issue, don't live that way. That gap, where possibly it's not true, that applied in Egypt, that applied at Sinai too. But what happened in Egypt was adequate to establish the fact to the extent of all other... And that is supposed to be how we... We are supposed to relate to the fact that we stood at Sinai with that kind of knowledge. Not more, not more, but at least that. We stood at Sinai. The Ramban says that the mitzvah of Sinai, although you know that we don't have any mitzvahs, the mitzvahs are all related to Exodus from Egypt, like we said. There aren't mitzvahs because of Sinai. Possibly one. You know what that is? To remember that you stood at Sinai. And you know what? That's not even phrased as remembering. Do you know, do you know there are six things you're supposed to remember all the time or every day? Six things. Right? Exodus from Egypt, standing at Sinai, Shabbos, what happened to Miriam, golden calf, Amalek. Six things you have to remind yourself every day. They're all phrased as remember, except for one. Right? Leman Tilsko, that you should remember. Each one says Zachar, remember. There's one that doesn't say remember. It says don't forget. And that's standing at Sinai. Be very careful, and guard yourself and take great care, lest you forget. Incidentally, it's a positive mitzvah and a negative mitzvah. You know that? Because it says, remember and don't forget. It says, it says be, be careful not to erase this. And, not. Guard yourself, lest you forget. Phrasing of positive and negative. Why are they all phrased as mitzvahs to remember, and one is phrased as a mitzvah not to forget? Because you know what the difference is? Something that you remember is something that you weren't thinking of. So I have to tell you, remember. Something that I phrase as don't forget means you should have been thinking of it already. Just don't move away. That's all. Sana is not something you should remember. It should be, you should be there. The Ramban in his golden language says, Our hearts and eyes should be there always. Your heart and your eyes should always be on or focused on Sana. That's where you live. That's where you live. That's where you are. So I don't tell you remember that, to take yourself back there. I have to say simply, don't forget. That's all. Just don't move away. That's all. Because your das is Sinai. That's who you are. Now, what problem does all this raise? I've done my best to project it. But you must be sitting there thinking, look, it's very nice theoretically, but, you know, I have still some problematic gap. I'm not there, you know. The best I can do is remember Sinai sometimes. But to be there, not to forget. You know, you're badly mistaken about that. Badly mistaken. Because the transmission that you have from former generations that you were there is ample and rich enough to be in touch with in your own heart. Let me try to give you an example. I don't know how well this will work for you, but I'll do my best. I want to try to demonstrate that your knowledge of these things is already in you. Despite no matter how skeptical you are, as long as you're normal psychologically, if you're problematic psychologically, I... Yeah, you see me privately, you know. You know. Of, course, if you, of course, if you think you're normal psychology, you're probably in a lot of trouble. But uh, be that as it may. Be that as it may. Let me try to demonstrate that there are things that you know, that you live by with a certainty, even though they are nowhere near proven. How do you know that you're Jewish? Is it proven? Is it proven? Let's think about this carefully. First of all, how do you know your parents are really your parents? Maybe they never told you. 
Maybe they found you on a park bench at the station, you know, a bench outside the station, and they took you home. Maybe your mother said to your father, oh, isn't she sweet? And your father said she looks a bit like you, and so they picked you up. (laughs) How do you know? Why do you trust them? And then furthermore, they told you that you're Jewish. Why? Because they said so, your parents, and they claimed that their parents were too. Do you have anything like proof? And by the way, even if you really trust them, and even if you knew your grandparents who really trusted them, can you go all the way back? Who in this room can go all the way back? How do you know that in the 1200s, somewhere, there wasn't a problem? A lot of problems, maybe. And some charlatan three, four hundred years ago, I'm going to claim to... Do you live that way? Do you live that way? You know, if you do, you're in big trouble because they have no doubts. Outside, they have no doubts. And if things get worse than they are now, there's no room in their minds for doubt. And you know what? When the crunch comes, you won't have any doubt either. Because you know it. But you know it on such unreliable evidence. Such unreliable evidence. You know it because... Uh, and you know, even in this generation where it wasn't an intense transmission, where many Jews did not sit at a Pesach Seder and have that intense transmission. That's how it's designed. It was designed to be a level of such intense transmission that it, was, it would burn in your consciousness. You know, the Mephoshim say, the commentaries say, for example, by Gideon, Gideon, he saw an angel. An angel appeared to him. An angel of God. You're talking about a divine revelation. And his immediate response when he saw the angel was, believe it or not, where are your signs and wonders? This angel appears to him. Do you know when an angel appears to you, it knocks you out of your... It's an it's a indescribable experience. Talking about a revelation of the divine. And Gideon turns to this angel and he says to him, where are your signs and wonders? So the commentaries say, it might, listen to this amazing insight. It must have been the first day of Pesach. Why? Because he sat the previous night at his father's Seder, and his father told him about going out of Egypt with signs and wonders, and it burned in his consciousness so fiercely, that when he saw a revelation of the divine, the first thing he could find to say, and the appropriate thing to say was, where the signs and where the miracles? <coughs> That's how the transmission is designed to be. And many of us in this generation didn't sit in a Pesach Seder like that. So for us, the question is even deeper. How do you know you're Jewish? We didn't grow up in a world where your parents categorically told you that, your, that their, their parents were murdered because they were Jewish. Many times not. Many times yes, many times not. Or that you witnessed such a thing. But it's good enough. It's good enough for you. Because it burns inside you and you know it. Even if you claim to be very distantly attached. Of course you can be so distant that it's not there. You can be. Yes, you can be. Four-fifths of the Jews in Egypt died. They did not make it out. Four, at least four-fifths, according to the most lenient opinion, the most mild opinion. Only one in five were attached enough to survive the experience. Four-fifths died in the plague of darkness. But those who do have it, those who do have that consciousness that they are attached, and it's a unique problem in this generation that there are many Jews who no longer have it as part of their bloodstream. It's an issue. It's probably this unique ordeal of this generation. Probably. Each generation has its ordeal. The non-Jewish world's ordeal is that they don't have coursing in their bloods any more than knowledge that they're human. Unfortunately. That's the non-Jewish world's problem. They think that they're advanced guerrillas. That's what they think. Coursing in their, in their veins is a consciousness yeah, that they are biological species that not so long ago was a chimpanzee. That's what they think. The non-Jewish world has an enormous amount of work to reassure itself that they're human and not animals. In New Zealand, a few months ago, they passed a law. Do you know this? In New Zealand, a few months ago, there's now been acted in law 
giving great uh, civil rights to the great apes. You know that? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not fooling you. This is, if today you're an orangutan, in New, the New Zealand's a place to be. <laughs> because, I'm not kidding. The argument is that they're similar enough to us biologically, that if we deserve what we call rights, then they deserve it too. Someone subsequently got up in the parliament and said, what about rats? <laughs> so they said they're working on rats now. But meantime, <laughs> that is not ridiculous. It is not ridiculous. If your philosophy is that you're a biological organism, then there's not much to separate you. Then it's a very moot point exactly what separates you. And do you know what separates you from being an animal? Do you know how you know that you're a human and not an animal? Only in your dice. That's all. You don't know it by any derivational proof or scientific information. It's all useless. The way that any decent, normal, non-Jew human being out there knows that he's human and not animal is only because he has an intrinsic knowledge that is, that is known, that is part of his consciousness, that can never be proved. Proofs are irrelevant. On the contrary, if you try to prove it technically and scientifically, the evidence is probably the other way. Probably. That's what's going on in the world. That's the background in our consciousness. And now if you're Jewish, so you have an added problem. First of all, you've got to establish that you're not an orangutan. And once you've got more or less convinced that you're not an orangutan, you're human, now you've got to know that you're Jewish too. There's nothing short of miraculous that we're still able to do that. But we do. We do. Whether it's one in five or one in fifty or one in five hundred, I don't know. But those who have it still have it. And how do they have it? By any reliable evidence? Well, I want you to know that that knowledge that you're a Jew is the very same knowledge that you stood at Sinai. That's where it comes from, on the contrary. That's why you have it. Nothing has lasted that long in history. You know that? Nothing has lasted even... On the contrary, this has lasted for 3,300 years. Other nations have risen and fallen and disappeared. Let alone retain the consciousness of one... And therefore, the standing at Sinai, there was such an electric phenomenon, there was such a personal relationship... Forget about proofs. It was such a marriage, such an intimacy, such a deep bond that he should kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, like it says. That's what it says about Sinai. There was a kiss. A kiss means an intimate bond. That's what it means in the deeper coded language. And that's come down to you as the knowledge that you're Jewish. And therefore it's there. You have to just access that. You know it with that kind of knowledge. Don't look for it in the proofs. And if you look for it in the proofs, then look for it with the humility to understand that there are no incontrovertible proofs. It's useful, it's very useful. You need to go back to Egypt and see what happened there and examine the plagues. And yes. But that's not, that's not the nature of the knowledge. That, that's a very far cry. The, all that will get you to is being at least an Egyptian. That's all. If you go back to Egypt and study the signs and wonders and miracles and you get to know about it that way, so maybe if you do it very well, you'll be an Egyptian. But that's not who you are. You have to get far beyond that. You have to get to a level where you actually know it. This space, this Nissan, right? We need to get to the knowledge before somebody else drives it in. Not in some hysterical and fanatical fashion. If we do that, we may not need that hysterical and fanatical lesson. It's only there to teach us that. That's all. It's only purpose. On the contrary, it's also suicidal to teach us that it should be your life. Why is it suicide? Let's examine that for a moment. Don't talk about current events. It's not our purpose. There are a lot of ways to kill Jews other than killing yourself. 
If you can already deliver an explosive to a place where it counts, you can also walk away. Why does it have to be demonstrated by... Because there's a message here. The message is that you're dying because you're a Jew who did not give your life for what you should have. That's what it means. So I'm going to show you that I'm capable of doing that. The whole world functions only as a message to us. That's all. Because that's where your life should be, in this consciousness. And there was someone else who's going to show you that it's more precious than life to him. What an insult to you. This is what you should be living for, and he's going to prove it by dying for it. That's what Pesach is. That's what the message is of this thing. So what is the purpose? Let's go back again. Let's run through it again. What is the purpose of these miracles and wonders in Egypt? If it's not, again, it's not a proof. At least it's no better proof than Sinai. So what do we need it for? What do we need that experience for of all ten levels? So again, this will take a long time. Maybe next week, it's a shame. We can go into more detail and we can look at the anatomy of miracles in detail and see what the levels of miracles are and what kind of miracles happened in Egypt and what happened before and why they were different. But very briefly, let's say this. The Zohar says, there's a statement in the Zohar, without going into the details, it says that the plagues that happened in Egypt were ten against ten. That's what it says. They were ten for ten. It's learned from a verse dealing with sacrifices. But there were ten things that happened there against the ten that were responsible for the creation of the world. And the Zohar goes into great detail. The ten sayings of the creation were relived, as it were, in the ten experiences in Egypt. And of course, the ten commandments are the fulfillment of that process. It's all the same. There's no, there's no um, pattern of ten in the Torah that's not connected. The inner dimension of the sayings of creation which create the vessel, the world, the vessel of the world. The correction, the bringing to a perfected vessel are the ten plagues in Egypt. And the ten commandments later are the filling of that vessel with light. And therefore the experience of the ten steps in Egypt, if you like, was a lesson. The Ramban says we were being taught faith, taught emunah. All the principles of the Torah are taught there. All the mitzvot are based there, says the Ramban. Many, most of the mitzvot are based there. All, the whole pinava pinav, every corner of the Torah, you say in English, every nook and cranny, is vested back in those ten steps that we witnessed in Egypt. And all the lessons of faith, says the Ramban. We learned all dimensions, all the basic ikrim, the, the fundamentals of Jewish faith. We learned in the Exodus. We learned in those ten steps. There's a fascinating debate between our Talmud and the Zohar. The Zohar says that the ten steps of creation begin with the first one, which is, Yehi or let there be light. Our Talmud says that the first of the sayings of creation was the word Bereshit in the beginning. Fascinating debate. According to our Talmud, the version in the Talmud, the first saying of creation is the statement of, in the beginning. It doesn't sound like a statement of creation. But the reason for that is because there was, before you can create something, you have to begin creation. Right? And therefore... Just like the first of the Ten Commandments, you have to be able to see the connection. Just like the first of the Ten Commandments, there's no phrasing of command. There's no thou shall or thou shall not. The first of the sayings of, of the Ten Commandments is simply, Hashem, I am Hashem. Why? Because you can't command until there's a relationship of a commander and one who's commanded. First there has to be an establishment of I am. And then I can tell you what to do. Just like the first saying of creation is not let there be, but simply in the beginning.
just like the tenth of the plagues is Anochi Veloy Ani Veloy I am no angel, I am no intermediary. Again, the pure essence, only Hashem. So our Talmud says the first of the sayings of creation is in the beginning. The Zohar says, the Zohar says, and our Talmud says that because it says if you count the sayings of creation, there are only nine. Let there be Yehi or Yehi Mavdi, Rakia Mavdi. You count them, there are only nine. Says the Talmud because the first word, Bereshit, that's the first of the commandments. First of the sayings of creation. The Zohar says that the first of the sayings of creation is let there be light. That's where it begins. And it counts up ten differently. Different ten, different order. And they correspond to the Ten Commandments too, and the Ten Plagues as well. Why is the first of the sayings of creation light? Why light? And as Zohar explains, and will take too long to go into now, but light is the medium of revelation. That means the creation begins as a revelation. And the Zohar says that that light is called faith. That's what it's called. It's called Emunah. Based on a verse that the Zohar brings. Hashem Oiri Vayishi. Hashem is my light and salvation. I w- have no fear. No fear. Because light means, because he's light, you should have no fear. What does that mean? Because the expression of light, says the Zohar, means faith. What is the connection between light and faith? And very briefly, without detail, we'll just end this with this for this evening because light is the medium of revelation it's not the things that you see it's the possibility of seeing in the first place it's the it's the, it's the background it's you don't see light you know that you don't see light you see the, what the light reveals about the things that it reveals light itself is a precursor to vision it's the background it's the medium if you like of vision and a monah of faith is the background of all knowledge all revelation of all facts in the world, of all things that exist in the world, the medium of their existence in the mind is this thing called us. And therefore the beginning of revelation in the world, the the beginning of revelation is the medium itself, that the world is nothing other than a revelation. You know, in modern physics, it's been very very richly demonstrated that the world is only the way you see it. Do you know that? Do you know that? In modern physics, you should read about it. It's fascinating. Fascinating. If that doesn't make you religious, nothing will. In modern physics, it's been demonstrated that things don't happen until you look at them. You know that in quantum mechanics. Photons and electrons, they don't, do, they don't exist. They, they exist in two contradictory states until you look. Then they decide which one to become. That the observer is part of what's observed. They have no way of understanding it. Incident. Richard Feynman, one of the most famous physicists, he said, you're not going to understand anything in this lecture that I'm going to tell you, but don't worry because none of us do either. <laughs> That's what he said. Because it doesn't make any sense. And all of the great work in quantum mechanics has demonstrated and experimentally verified. Einstein said it couldn't be. You know that? When, Einstein, when they came up with a theory and demonstrated it would be like this, Einstein said it couldn't be. You know what he called it? Spookhaftig. You know what spookhaftig means? Spooky. <laughs> Einstein said it cannot be. But he died in 1955. And in 1986 it was demonstrated by Alain in Paris. Read the physics. It's fascinating. Performed experiments. It's been done many times since. Things don't happen until you look at them. Isn't that our teaching? The world is only a gilu, it's only a revelation. Even in philosophy they say, the sense-data problem, right? We never see a thing, we only see, all we have is the sensory perception of the thing, but you never see the thing itself. You think you feel a thing when you feel it. 
You don't feel the thing. All you're experiencing is what your nerves are doing in your brain. But you don't know the thing itself. Fascinating issue. It can drive you really to distraction. But it doesn't matter, because from a Jewish perspective, that's all that the world is. It's a revelation to you. You have nothing else of the world. That's exactly why it's built that way. Physics is not an enigma to, to, to distract you, to disturb you. It's to teach you the truth. You don't know the world. All you know is it's revelation to you. That's what light means. Light means all you have of Hashem is what He reveals to you. All of the world of physics and all of reality is only a gilui. And the only way you know anything is with the medium of dyes. Because you know it is that way. I haven't had it proved adequately. It's not the issue. We're talking about the medium itself, knowledge itself. And it's in that department of knowledge that you have to know you're Jewish. And it's in that department of knowledge that you have to know that you stood at Sinai. And it's with that vision you have to look back at the miracles and learn what they teach. And therefore, what we do at the Pesach Seder, what we enter this month, is the month of that which is miraculous. That's our Seder. Now we start to feel comfortable. We live in a world, we start living in a world, ah, the fact that the world looks impossible and disastrous and absolutely murderous and so forth, that's by the natural accounting. Is it distressing? Yes, absolutely. But the way beyond that, and the way through it, and the way to make it absolutely dissolve and melt away, is to realize that well, that's not our plane, that's not where we are. Because if you look at it naturally, it is so terrifying. If you look at it that way, according to all the calculations, it is so terrifying, you might as well just lay down everything right now. But that's not what Nissan's about. Nissan is about the fact that, no matter how impossible it looks, with all the proofs of its impossibility, that's not where we are. We live in a different place, different dimension. We live in a world with no dimension. That's out. And therefore, let's try to move towards this month. Maybe next week we can try to look at the miracles themselves and try and dissect the anatomy of the, of the level, see if we can go into that. But for the meantime, let's at least get used to getting in touch with the knowledge that is the knowledge that lives on another plane beyond dimension. Thank you.